You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the National Community Radio Network. Today's program was produced on Willikali Country with interview guests on Bundjalung Country and Wurundjeri Country, and we're broadcast across stolen lands via the Community Radio Network. I'd like to pay my respects to traditional owners and their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continuing struggle for sovereignty and self-determination. I'm Megan Williams. The fact that they are progressively defunding climate uh, funding, the minuscule amount that there already was, is just a huge slap in the face for communities like mine. The climate crisis is upon us. The word unprecedented is becoming well-worn. 2022 will be remembered as the year that record floods wreaked havoc in northern New South Wales and southern Queensland. Only last week, the federal government handed down its pre-election budget, but since gaining the Prime Ministership, Scott Morrison has overseen the 2019 fish kills in Menindee, the 2020 Black Summer bushfires, the COVID crisis, and now these record floods. But forget money for climate. This government has sent a strong message. Gas will lead Australia's recovery. Joining me today on Earth Matters to talk all about it will be the Economy and Democracy Program Manager at the Australian Conservation Foundation, Matt Rose. And later, we'll hear from Resilient Lismore Coordinator and Lismore City Councillor, Ellie Bird, on what recovery means to a community reeling after a climate-fuelled environmental disaster. Matt Rose starts us off with a summary of the budget. I think from the environmental perspective, the budget was uh, exceedingly disappointing. Uh, Perhaps perhaps the most disappointing budget we've seen in a number of years at the federal level on the environment. Um, Climate was barely mentioned. There was nothing really in there to kind of advance the energy transition, look after the communities affected in that transition. Uh, And there was, on the flip side, there was subsidies, further subsidies for the fossil fuel industry and the gas industry. And usually in previous federal budgets, we've seen a bit of money for the fossil fuel industry and some climate initiatives, but there wasn't anything in there on climate. On the more kind of nature environmental side, the government did announce some things for koalas uh, previous to the actual budget, which were in the budget, and money for the Great Barrier Reef, for science and for uh, avoiding runoff and things like that, which of course is welcome, but... uh, Again, on the flip side, habitat loss and the koala is a very topical issue at the moment. We know that they're um, probably going to have been added to, you know, an at-risk species in Australia because of habitat loss. And the government gave $50 million, which is, again, it's, you know, it's playing around at the edges of these issues rather than dealing with things systemically. And exactly the same for the Great Barrier Reef. Money for science and avoiding runoff from farms, of course, is welcome, but if we've got a government that kind of refuses to deal with climate change head on. So you can throw all the money you like at things like that for the Great Barrier Reef. But the fact is, if you're not dealing with climate change, 
the reef is at great risk anyway. Mm. And it's a pretty bad look to have the koala go extinct while you're in government. Yeah, I think so. It's a pretty iconic Australian species. Politicians love nothing more than being photographed cuddling a koala. If you think about when world leaders come to Australia, they're always taken somewhere for a photo up to cuddle a koala. So, yeah, I guess it's very emblematic of the government's approach to nature. If the kind of the most iconic Australian species, if they're willing to let that be put under threat, then you've got to wonder about the things they're actually doing in the environment in the background. And unfortunately, we know that they haven't got a great track record, this government, of protecting habitat. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned that there's this double whammy, nothing for the environment and money for gas. Can you kind of tell us uh, what um, fossil fuel projects are kind of earmarked for expansion or approval or, you know, what what can we see in, in the budget papers to tell us what's happening with the fossil fuel industry in coming years if this government stays in power? Uh, they're very interested and very committed to the to the, this gas-led recovery that they've been talking about since the pandemic hit. Um, they've started pouring much more money into projects directly. So we've seen in this budget, we've seen more money for gas exploration in the Beetaloo Basin. We've seen money for lots of studies about how to get gas from the new projects they're thinking through in the Northern Territory and Queensland down to the East Coast, so more money for gas pipelines, studies into um, new gas basins, uh, $300 million for a big kind of gas and hydrogen production project in Darwin, which is about turning uh, producing hydrogen but producing it from gas rather than producing it from renewable energy, which... Um, yeah, there's an interesting discussion about green hydrogen, which is renewable energy hydrogen versus blue hydrogen, which is hydrogen from gas. And they're, they're leaning into hydrogen from gas. Uh, and then that was, of course, accompanied by the usual subsidies around the diesel fuel rebate, which costs which uh, costs the budget about $38 billion over four years. And that's money that goes back to uh, farmers, but also miners and heavy industry and some of our biggest companies like Twiggy Forests Fortescue and BHP and Rio Tinto to um, subsidise their diesel fuel. And interestingly, uh, Twiggy Forest has been out calling for an end to that subsidy. Uh, so for kind of the first time, I think ACF's been talking about ending that subsidy for decades. And for the first time, we've kind of got support from a big company that uses that subsidy saying, we don't actually need it. We want it to be put towards other things. So that's that's really that's really promising. But yes, this government is keen on gas uh, and their budget papers mean that they've shown that that's what they really want to lean into. And they want to subsidise private companies to do it, which is, uh, I think there's, it's one thing to talk about the gas industry and allowing them to do their own thing. And obviously they're a terrible fossil fuel and we need to phase out, but it's, it's another thing for a government to like lean in so strongly and to subsidise private industry in this way. And this government has shown in the last few budgets that that's what they want to do. They're, and gas is kind of the thing they're leaning into. Yeah, and I saw in the ACF kind of analysis that had environmental spending mirrored the budget growth over the last few years, which presumably that growth was directly related to covid and this gas-led recovery is the kind of pathway out of COVID that the government's taken. But had they have taken an approach in the environment that that 
the kind of spending we might see in environment would be up to 5.1 billion. What could have been done with the COVID recovery funds if it was put into environment to to help stimulate you know the economy and to keep our keep our communities thriving um, and recover from COVID? That's a, a great, really excellent question and something obviously ACF has been pushing since the pandemic started and governments are really keen to spend money. So looking across kind of what's, what's required, there's a lot required obviously in the transition to clean energy and so that includes electrifying things, putting solar panels on community buildings and government buildings as a start, uh, making sure your local library, your local health centre has solar on the roof. These are things that are used during the day so you get like lots of value from that solar. You don't necessarily need a battery because you're using all the solar during the day. So that's a really important um, element. We really wanted to see an, uh, like a, a real increase in the uptake of solar and government can really um, get that going. Uh, in terms of things like transport, which is a really growing concern in emissions, it's, it's gonna, transport is going to become the leading cause of Australia's emissions in the next few years. So accelerating the um, uptake of electric vehicles uh, across the country. So that includes electrifying our buses for public transport, but also providing more incentives for people to be able to buy electric vehicles, for suppliers to bring electric vehicles to Australia um, in terms of yeah, really driving down our transport emissions and investing more in public transport as well. So like these are big infrastructure opportunities that we would like to have seen. In terms of the kind of the nature side, uh, there's lots of habitat that needs to be restored in Australia. Um, Australia has unfortunately or unfortunately has a long history of farming, a long history of mining, which has brought lots of prosperity to the country, but it also means we've got landscapes that need to be restored. Um, and that kind of work also creates a lot of jobs. So we also worked on calling for the government to put money into that, that kind of restoration of habitat um, in, in kind of damaged landscapes. Uh, you look at the places where we've had bushfires over the last few years, that there's a lot of work that is needed to restore those things. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity in Australia. And then I haven't even talked about the need for the the investment in communities that are kind of at the forefront of the energy transition. So fossil fuel communities that um, are increasingly becoming aware that they, there is a need to transition and whether the Australian government likes it or not, those transition is going to be forced on those communities. So we also need investment and have called for investment in those communities so they can work with governments and the local council, local businesses to work out what they want their community to look like. Uh, and so money's, government money is required to be put in those communities to help them transition. So, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of good things to help accelerate the transition and improve the environment. Um, and, yeah, and the government, unfortunately, has really missed uh, an opportunity here. Mm. And it's not just those transition, um, you know, the, like, like the Latrobe Valley or the Hunter Valley. It's not just mm. those communities, but the communities on the forefront of climate change. That Absolutely. Could, you know, do you have any sense of how people um, around the country that are seeing witnessing climate change feel about this? Uh, obviously, um, I think for a lot of people, the warnings that they've been talking about for a long time uh, and the things that they've seen coming that they've been talking about, including fires and bushfires, are suddenly up upon them. And I think that is really confronting for them. And I think it's confronting for them not in the immediate feelings about physical safety, and about losing 
their sense their well, some of them losing their houses, their sense of community because community centres and, you know, the centres of towns are inundated and damaged. But also um, the lack of support and the lack of um, not just in the immediate aftermath, because I know there's lots of talk at the moment about how quickly things are happening to rebuild those communities and help those communities, but in the fact that the warnings that they have been putting out there for so long have been ignored by governments who have refused to take action on a larger scale on climate. I think that is probably very confronting for people as well. I know as someone who is nowhere near, lives in a city in Australia and is nowhere near um, those kind of natural disaster areas, it's confronting for everyone who cares about climate that uh, we've got governments, um, well, mostly federal state governments generally doing not a bad job, but we've got a federal government that is not acknowledging what kind of we're seeing before our eyes every day and is essentially gaslighting us or attempting to. Um, and I think that's probably really confronting for people in those communities. Um, and I think, yeah, most there's a great job of advocacy being done by people in those communities, people like Bushfires for Climate Action and other groups who um, are really taking their concerns up to the federal government as people on the on the front line. And I think, I think as a community, we are people are surprised, I think, in general, when I talk to them about how quickly the warnings that we're hearing a few years ago, like the climate damage is here. I don't think people realised how quickly it was going to happen. Um, uh, yeah, and I think that that hits people pretty hard, no matter where they are in Australia, that just to watch uh, it kind of unfold while we have a government who refuses to acknowledge it. Uh, yeah, it grabs you pretty hard sometimes, I think, um, as people who care about the planet and also care about people in Australia at the same time and animals and the critters that we all love. It's like it's a bit of a shock to the system. Yeah. And um, what about Labor's budget reply? Is there, you know, are we kind of locked in regardless of who wins uh, in, in May or has have they come back with uh, any stronger responses? What is Labor offering as an alternative? I think Labor have offered us... Um, us being the country, a bit, bit more, a, a sliver more of hope around. Uh, even their rhetoric is a bit more positive about the transition being an op- an economic opportunity for the country. We are, um, you know, we have some of the best renewable energy resources in the world, in wind and solar, particularly. Um, and Labor have acknowledged that and realised that that's something really to lean into for the country and to try and develop those resources. Um, they've talked a lot about uh, things like community batteries, which is a really positive element. I think where they're too, a bit too similar to the government is the there's just they still like the government refuse to recognise that the transition is happening and refuse to be honest with the community about it in some of those um, fossil fuel communities. And I think that that is a problem. Uh, so that's that's an issue that I think if they win government, they'll have to work through because you can't, I don't think you can keep not telling the truth to your population because it also means you're not thinking through what transition looks like for those communities and how you can work with them better. So unfortunately, both parties, because of the way climate is turned into a political weapon, um, you know, they're very tentative, I think, about really leaning into the the opportunities and and uh, mainly see it as a political problem to be managed
That was Matt Rose, the Economy and Democracy Program Manager at the Australian Conservation Foundation, finishing off with how both major parties are managing climate as a political problem, an approach that's creating a far greater problem. Now we're going to Bundjalung country, where Lismore is on the forefront of the climate crisis. To tell us all about it is Ellie Bird, local city councillor and coordinator for the community group Resilient Lismore. So Resilient Lismore kicked off in 2017 after the what we thought was one of the biggest floods we would see in a very long time. Uh, we had big floods in March, around about this time in 2017, and it started off as a Facebook group of people wanting to reach out and help each other and it became an on-ground community organising hub of distributing food and goods and organising volunteers with clean out and things like that. In the time between 2017 and now, we switched to a preparedness focus and a resilience focus. So we were talking a lot about disasters and uh, resilience and then the big flood hit us at the end of February and we just kicked back in because we sort of, it's familiar territory to us, but obviously the scale of what we're dealing with with this one is just um, exponentially larger than what we did in 2017. And, you know, we've all seen the images of everything underwater. Um, Can you tell us a bit about how that, what that's like to live through? So the actual flood was incredible, was terrifying, Uh, terrifying for the people that lived through it, terrifying for the community that witnessed it, terrifying for the wider community who saw those shocking images and watched all of the many, many people being pulled out of the floodwaters. The floodwaters themselves stayed up for about four days, I think, and then what doesn't sort of hang around in the media so much is what the recovery then is so we do get coverage of the mountains of waste but now Lismore is just a ghost town the CBD has just got smashed windows and empty shops there's um, the insides of buildings hanging down out of the roofs we've got thousands of homes uninhabitable windows smashed doors wrecked asbestos all over the place it's just, um, it's the worst possible um, thing that you could ever imagine to happen to the centre of your community and that's what we live through every day. That's what our the centre of our community looks like um, five, nearly six weeks in. And what is the, like, what's involved in the clean-up effort and who's helping with that? So the first few weeks are always pretty intense because the spontaneous volunteers come, thousands and thousands of people pour into the community and rip out everyone's belongings and put them on the footpath, which is great in a way, but also quite traumatic for the people who those belongings belong to. And then we, with this particular flood, because it was so much higher than anything that we had ever seen, like Lismore is used to flooding. We've lived through many, many floods in our time. We are a flood city. And so we're quite used to floods that go underneath the houses or just up into the floorboards and things like that. But with this flood, thousands and thousands of homes were inundated up to their roofs. And so 
every single home has had to be completely gutted. All of the walls have been ripped out, the roofs, the ceilings have been ripped out, the bathrooms, the kitchens. They're just like shells. And now we've got a community who have these shells of houses and they have nowhere to live and they're trying to think about whether or not they rebuild, how they rebuild, how they rebuild better in case it happens again, which as climate change escalates, the likelihood of us experiencing something like that again is high. Uh, So, yeah, that's what we're living through at the moment. We still have thousands of people displaced out of their homes and people trying to make very difficult decisions with a doubly traumatised mind about what they do next. Mm. Because, And I say doubly traumatised because just um, a few days ago, well, all time, time gets very strange when you're in recovery, uh, a week ago or something, we had a second flood and that flood was higher than the previously highest flood in 2017. So we've been doubly impacted and our community are just at breaking point. They've had to live through it twice. They're still struggling with how to restore themselves to safe, secure housing. And it's just uh, an ongoing nightmare. Yeah. And I mean, I'm wondering what kind of coping strategies you're employing as a community to um, support each other through, you know, such a drawn out and traumatic time. So one one of the great things that Resilient Lismore does and one of the sort of backbones of our efforts and our community work is our social media group, our Facebook group. So at the beginning of this event, we had about 7,500 members in that group. We're edging up to 30,000 now. And in that group, Resilient Lismore and our amazing team of community moderators are very kind and very gentle. We have really good strategies about supporting people if they're uh, obviously struggling we we care for each other within that online space and we encourage people to access the support and the resources that are available so we're constantly promoting the mental health support lines and lifeline as a as a phone number for someone who can talk but we're also there you know as a community we are there we have people that stay up all night in that facebook group just in case somebody reaches out or somebody is having a hard time through the night And in terms of face-to-face engagement, uh, we have a couple of community hubs that are up and running. The Koori Mail, which is the incredible First Nations-led initiative uh, being led by people from the Bundjalung Nation in the heart of Bundjalung country, they're doing incredible community care work. So they have uh, healers there every day. There's free food, there's volunteers, there's supplies, So people can come to any of those distribution centres and get what they need. And when they come and get what they need, they also get to meet and be with community and, and connect with each other in that way. And, you know, before this second flood, um, you know, as you, I guess I'm struggling to phrase it because, you know, the disaster just repeated itself, but, you know, there was, Mm moments where you were in recovery and you know that the stories were talking about how this kind of chaos was turning to anger and frustration at the government um 
were you involved in any or was Resilient Lismore involved in any of these climate actions that um, kind of happened a couple of weeks ago? And can you tell me about that? Yeah, look, lots, lots of our members were. So our social movement history is that a lot of the people that were part of Lismore Helping Hands, which is what Resilient Lismore was in 2017, we all came from the Gasfield Free Northern Rivers Movement. So we were all involved in the anti-pulsing gas campaign here in the Northern Rivers, which was one of the biggest community campaigns that uh, had ever been seen in this region. So so that's our background. We are activists. It's how we learnt to become community connectors and community uh, workers in this space. We we don't wait for government. We just get in and do what we need to do to support our community. And um, so, yeah, lots of our people were involved in those um, climate actions. Um, people from our community went down and were part of the school strike um, just recently, we had a an amazing young woman who uh, was impacted speaking at that rally, and yeah, so that's that's in our DNA. We know that we're living on the front line of climate change, and that our most vulnerable community members are the ones that are being impacted over and over again. And I mean, it also feels like forever ago, but the budget was only uh, a week or so ago. Um, were you? What was your response to any of the kind of announcements to flood support or um, money for? Ah, ab- absolutely appalling, absolutely appalling, totally missing in action. The fact that they are progressively defunding climate uh, funding, the minuscule amount that there already was, is just a huge slap in the face for communities like mine. Um, we are in the middle of a climate emergency. Lismore City Council declared a climate emergency a number of years ago. We've been trying to do uh, climate preparation work, but we're severely underfunded for that work. And the fact that this federal government will just continue to chip away at it whilst also pandering to the vested interests of coal and gas companies is just absolutely abhorrent to our community. It's not good enough. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. That was Ellie Bird from Resilient Lismore. And earlier in the program, we heard from Matt Rose from the Australian Conservation Foundation. My name is Megan Williams. To support the flood recovery in the Northern Rivers, go to floodhelpnrfornorthernrivers.com.au. And if you'd like to get in touch with us at Earth Matters, you can email earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter. You can listen back on the program by going to 3cr.org.au slash earthmatters or searching Earth Matters 3CR wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you've enjoyed today's program. And if you have, rate, review and subscribe and share us with a friend. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is usually produced in the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne, but today's episode was produced remotely on Kali Country with interviews across stolen land. We'll see you next time for more Earth Matters. Thank you.